You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this week uh, we are in conversation with Teddy Schleifer. Uh, now, Teddy is a journalist in the US. Uh, he's a senior reporter on money and influence for Recode, which is part of the Vox Media family. Um, and he specialises uh, in reporting on the lives and doings of the very wealthy, billionaires in particular. And a big part of uh, his work over the last few years has been increasingly reporting on their philanthropy. And so it was great to sit down a couple of weeks ago with Teddy uh, and have a really interesting conversation about what's going on in US philanthropy, particularly kind of big money, elite philanthropy, philanthropy coming out of Silicon Valley. Um, we talked uh, a bit about uh, the role of journalism in relation to, to philanthropy, so uh, why it's important that we have journalism covering philanthropy and giving it scrutiny, um, how you fund that journalism, um, and some of the questions there around philanthropy itself, funding journalism, and some of the issues that uh, that, that raises. Um, we talked about the broader question of critiquing philanthropy and where sort of fair scrutiny perhaps tipped over into cynicism and some of the the potential risks of that and also whether we needed to distinguish between some of the scrutiny and and critique of big money elite philanthropy and what we could say more broadly about kind of mass market giving. Um, We talked quite a bit about perceptions of wealth whether that was by billionaires themselves uh, and whether they sort of viewed their own wealth as self-created and or whether they saw some element of reliance on wider society on others and how that impacted their philanthropy Uh, and also we we talked really interestingly about the perceptions of the public uh, about the very wealthy and about their philanthropy which often are kind of go against what you might think if you are um, listening to to a lot of narratives about these things Um, we talked about how philanthropy itself is being practiced in silicon valley we talked about whether there's a particular tendency towards uh, sort of solutionism and tech solutionism particularly we talked about what that meant for whether that kind of philanthropy was likely to be willing to give away power as well as financial resources and that brought us on to talking a bit about Mackenzie Scott's philanthropy in particular which has obviously been really interesting in sort of challenging some of the paradigms of big money and particularly tech philanthropy in the US and we also talked about the crossover between philanthropy and politics um, and some of the issues that that raises um, in the US and of course elsewhere. And so without further ado, let's go into the conversation. Uh, I will be back at the end for the usual bit of housekeeping and tidying up. Okay, great. So I'm here with Teddy Schleifer. Hi, Teddy. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, And Teddy, you are a senior reporter on money and influence at Recode, which is part of the Vox Media family, and really keen to talk to you today about all sorts of stuff to do with philanthropy and kind of covering it as a journalist and your particular um, insights on Silicon Valley philanthropy. But maybe the the best starting point is just for you to say a bit about what kind of brought you to covering philanthropy as a journalistic beat. Sure. So I've always been interested in rich people. Um, and I say that not 
in a voyeuristic sense about, you know, what kind of cars they drive or, you know, uh, tell me about Kim Kardashian's lifestyle, but that these are people who have extraordinary influence, uh, at least in American life. And, um, you know, it's funny. So in, in the United States, there is a ton of coverage of income inequality and wealth inequality. Um, and there are a lot of reporters who cover poverty as sort of one way of covering inequality, right? You want to understand just how hard it is to be bereft um, of kind of great wealth. But there's very few people who cover the other side of inequality, which is the mega rich and what their life is like, you know? Um, and so that's always been what I've been passionate about uncovering. Um, so I used to be at CNN. I used to be uh, a reporter covering money and politics, which is sort of like, I think of it as a as an adjacent beat to covering philanthropy. There's a lot of similarities. Um, so I spent a few years at, uh, covering money and politics, and I still sort of do uh, here at Recode. Um, and then over the last three or four years, I've started digging more and more into the philanthropy side of the beat. Um, and what unites all of this is my belief that um, the wealthiest people in society deserve more coverage, more scrutiny, more transparency. Anything that I can do to peel back the onion a little bit uh, is good for democracy. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think it, it seems to be something that's increasingly kind of agreed upon in people thinking about philanthropy that, you know, there does need to be more scrutiny and, and transparency. I, I guess one thing that occurs to me and be interesting to get your take on is how receptive and positive have the, the people who are actually uh, being, you know, receiving that scrutiny uh, to, to the idea of having journalists kind of covering their philanthropy? Are they are they broadly positive about it because they think it's in you know in the best interests of philanthropy as a whole or are they generally not that keen they're generally not that keen <laughs> I, I think that there's almost a performative element that you hear from the philanthropists about their interest in actually receiving coverage and to be blunt i, I actually do not think that lots of major philanthropists want coverage at all i would think that you know lots of them would be totally fine if all of these reporters never covered them which is extremely unusual like I, I mean there are there are people that i cover who have no interest in even positive stories um and, and i think we can talk about why that is and whether you know the backlash to philanthropy has gone too far so to speak but i, I typically find that that lots of uh major donors would prefer to be anonymous figures right they'd prefer to be left alone and i don't think that's necessarily unique to the world of philanthropy i just think that you know, the, the conversations that I'm hoping to provoke, they see as a threat. And, and that's not, again, that's not specific to philanthropy. That's, you know, sort of wealth inequality more broadly. I find it relatively rare that, that folks who are wealthy intentionally will say that they're uninterested in real coverage. But I think the proof is in, in, in the pudding. And it's funny, you know, I, I'm relatively new on the speed. I've been covering it three or four years, but I've been talking more recently with some sort of veterans of the philanthropy beat to figure out, is it a me issue um, or is it a beat issue? And um, maybe I'm searching for uh, comfort to my ego, but I think it's, I think it's the latter. I do, I do not think that any philanthropy journalist that I know of finds that these people are open books. So look, I mean, ultimately people got to do the PR strategy that they feel is best for them. It's not my job to do it, but I can tell you from the receiving end, from the journalism end, a lot of the transparency kind of uh, rhetoric that these people adopt isn't borne out in practice. 
And that's the concern, I guess, isn't it? That it's very easy to to make positive noises about transparency, but actually, if you know, that can be a lot more awkward in in practice. So it takes, uh, you know, yeah, far more sort of uh, strength of character, I guess, to be genuinely positive to the idea that people might uh, give you scrutiny that's that's more uncomfortable. One thing that just sort of leads me on to thinking is, you know, part of the argument about the potential importance of having more scrutiny of philanthropy is that it would be good for philanthropy itself in a sort of sense of enlightened self-interest and that it might help to answer some of those critiques and concerns about the the distorting role that philanthropy can have in, in a democracy and then there are arguments that because of that philanthropy itself should fund more journalism including journalism that scrutinizes philanthropy have you seen you know anyone you know amongst the kind of big donors that that you've covered buying into that that argument at all and and i guess you know as a follow-up question is is there actually something slightly problematic about that idea of philanthropic funding for journalism and what it might mean for for journalism's ability to hold philanthropy to account it definitely is an area of interest to, to some people I cover, probably most prominently, Lorraine Powell Jobs, who runs Emerson Collective, which is a big philanthropy out here. It also introduces, as you, as you point out, profound conflicts of interest. Um, how can someone who is covering um, Lorraine Powell Jobs receive money from Lorraine Powell Jobs or, or you know, any big kind of philanthropist who's interested in media? That being said, uh, other alternatives to, uh, you know, billionaire funding are have their own complications, right? I mean, obviously, I work for a VC-backed media company. Um, you know, there would be a conflict of interest with me covering some of the VCs who cover who fund Vox Media, right? Um, obviously, you know, the advertising model uh, might not even work. So, who knows if you'll even have a job in the other system, um, which isn't good for democracy or transparency either. That's a long way of saying, look, there's there's no perfect system here. I think every funding model for, for philanthropy journalism it has its own issues. But I don't honestly think that the issue is necessarily there's no one to pay for it. I think the issue is fundamentally that lots of editors don't feel this beat is important enough. And that's changed a little bit. I mean, during COVID, I would say we've seen almost a high watermark for philanthropy coverage, at least in the couple of years that I've been writing about it, which makes sense. I think, you know, obviously the philanthropy beat has been very interesting over the last year or two. You know, the needs and demands on uh, the richest people in the world have been have been greater than ever. Um, so we've seen, I, I know I've seen a lot of places that don't cover philanthropy traditionally over the last year or two start really covering it more and more. And I guess I'm part of that. I'm a part of that shift. But I think ultimately the the, the question that I would pose to editors is if you want to cover wealth inequality, and you know you have five or six reporters covering kind of broadly the issue of poverty. You need to cover the other side of that chasm. You need to cover the mega rich. And I don't really know entirely why that doesn't happen. I've been talking about this with more and more people. I actually recently read this fascinating book called Billionaire Wilderness, um, which isn't really about philanthropy. It came out, I believe, last year. It's about the wealthy uh, in Jackson County, Wyoming, one of the places where uh, near Yellowstone National Park, where lots of wealthy people live. And it's this book by an academic that looks into the wealthiest people in Jackson County, which are some of the wealthiest people in the country. And, and the book explores how to get access to these people. And I find that lots of people do not cover the wealthy because it's hard, right? I mean, it's, it's covering, covering poverty is obviously hard in, in different ways, but finding the people, you know, there are tons of nonprofit organizations that can, if you're looking for a family that's uh, struggling on rent, a nonprofit organization can help you. Getting access to the richest people in the world is hard by design. It's not like, you know, 
the fault uh, of, of reporters that they can't find these people or they can't, you know, shoot them a text message. I mean, like these, these, these billionaires have gatekeepers all over them. So I find the, the big impediment to good philanthropy coverage to be, to be a couple things, and it's nothing to do with the funding. And it, I think it primarily has to do with the lack of demonstrated interest from, from editors at the top. Um, and I think it also has to do with just this belief that finding interesting stories on this stuff that aren't puff pieces is too hard. Um, and hopefully, I would love in five or 10 years for there to be more people covering this beat. There are certainly more stories than, than I, can, I can get to and other philanthropy reporters can get to. So it's in my self-interest to, to say, stay out, everybody, and, and give me all the scoops. But I want, I want, more, people, I want more people covering this. Yeah, definitely. It, and it's interesting you said to, towards the end there about sort of puff pieces, because it always strikes me that, you know, uh, one of the odd things about philanthropy is it's at one and the same time about individuals and their kind of individual lives and decisions, but also at a macro level, it's a kind of systemic thing that has a huge impact on on society in all kinds of ways. But I guess when covering philanthropy, you know, through through news media, the temptation then is to see it as a sort of lifestyle thing. And that traditionally, I guess, is where most coverage of philanthropy has been. It's been like, oh, look at these people and their amazing flashy lives. But but obviously that is very heavily curated and controlled. And actually that bit that is looking at philanthropy as a more systemic issue is harder. Although, you know, I would agree, it feels like more outlets are starting to take it seriously in that way and to sort of think about it in in terms of the sort of broader issues it raises which is which is great um so yeah plenty more of that i, I just wanted to to come on and ask a bit um there i mean the book you were talking about there about jackson county sounds fascinating um and I, i'm definitely going to search out a copy i guess one area that you seem to have covered a lot naturally through your work is is kind of around silicon valley and kind of more broadly the tech industry because that's really feels like where a lot of the the mega wealth these days is being made I mean, I've got all kinds of questions about this. One, one that I'm, you know, really interested in um, goes to something that you guys put out recently at Vox. You had some uh, polling out that was really interesting, where you looked at um, perceptions of sort of billionaire wealth, and it was, I think, might have struck a few people as counterintuitive in terms of actually perceptions being less negative than you might think, given you know some of the, the coverage. Maybe you could just, you know, kind of say a bit about what what you found in in that. Sure. Um, yeah. So we, I've always been interested in, in, uh, in what regular people think about these issues. I mean, one, one of the challenges that I was just describing is that lots of billionaires are not actually interested in the coverage, which ultimately makes, I think the critics at times have an outsized voice in the debate. And I, I wonder what reporters can do to make that not the case, but I feel like the, the conversation around philanthropy is heavily driven by you know, the furthest left critics, um, which like kudos to them, you know, obviously they have an, a point of view, they want to advance it, taking up the vacuum makes sense for them. Um, but I think lots of the wealthiest people in society have retreated from sort of the public debate on these issues, um, which can lead to a skewed portrait of what real people think. Um, so we here at Vox wrote a story that was pegged to sort of a year after COVID, trying to look at, did our perceptions of billionaire philanthropists and just billionaires more broadly changed during COVID. Because at the beginning of this, um, and it's interesting you say it's counterintuitive, because I could have very, I think you can make a reasonable argument that of both eventualities, you could envision a scenario where billionaires are front and center in the American response, at least, um, in a way that validates the central premise of philanthropy, that they're 
you know, this vanguard of, of, uh, of leadership and that they're always going to be willing to step into the void when crisis hits. And obviously, in lots of ways, billionaires played a huge role in, in kind of helping regular Americans uh, survive. On the other hand, of course, um, you could envision a scenario in which as the average or as lots of Americans are struggling, uh, you know, knowing people who die, knowing people who lost their job, um, they see the wealthiest people in society for a whole host of reasons that we can get into, get richer. That's screwed up, right? You could easily see that scenario coming too. So we were curious to know what actually happened, or you know, not even that doesn't even matter what actually happened. What do people perceive happened, which is often more interesting than what actually happens. Um, and what we found was was a little bit of both. You know, the this idea that the wealthy got wealthier, um, and that that was somehow unfair. Americans, frankly, across the political spectrum, agreed with it. I think somewhere around seventy percent of people versus like twenty percent. Um, so they felt it was unfair that the wealthier got wealthier during the pandemic, which was like one of the clearest kind of biggest spreads of all of our polling. Um, on the other hand, I, I think we found lots of wealthy people, sorry, lots of regular Americans rejecting the argument that it is somehow immoral to be wealthy. You know, there's this kind of riff that's taken hold on the left that every billionaire is a policy failure. I think it's a quote affiliated with the orbit of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, or that you know Bernie Sanders often sort of promotes this idea that wealthy people are immoral, or that there's a society that produces billionaires is something's fundamentally broken with that society. And we found that lots of Americans were actually rejected that argument, um, that they did not necessarily hate the idea of billionaires. They did not see that billionaire dumb is you know fundamentally wrong. Um, Frankly, there was some admiration for these people. They think that they actually do a pretty good job at giving away their money. Um, so I think the consensus, if I were to you know, try to put all these beliefs together, um, is somewhere kind of along the lines of uh, America being you know, comfortable with sort of this neoliberal philanthrocapitalist uh, status quo, which is billionaires are not bad people. You know, Yeah, it's wrong that they have more money than they started with. We should have higher taxes, but the furthest left critique that, you know, billionaires are bad isn't something that average Americans agree with. And I find that fascinating because, as I mentioned at the outset, the conversation, at least like on elite platforms like Twitter or, you know, in public policy debates is driven pretty heavily by the left right now. Um, and I think Americans views are, are more complicated or more at least more there's more texture there than I think we might give them credit for. Yeah, it, it was really interesting. I, I particularly, I found it echoed some similar findings here in the UK, which would surprise me even more in some ways that um, when people were actually polled about views on on wealth, they were much more positive about it than you often might get the the sense from reading uh, a lot of news media. And similarly, they were positive about the idea of, of philanthropy. Although I do, I wonder there was some interesting stuff in there about whether people's perception of millionaires was different to billionaires, both in terms of having any understanding of what 
what a billionaire genuinely was and also you know millionaires have a level of wealth that is understandable and aspirational even if you never expect to have it whereas a billionaire almost seems like a creature from outer space to most people because their level of wealth is so far beyond that but um i guess coming back to the specific points about philanthropy it's really interesting because one of the things i think that's happened in some of the debates is not only that philanthropy has been caught up in wider debates about inequality and wealth but it's almost become push to the front and center via an argument which sort of says you know i guess there's one line of argument which is you're focusing on the wrong people if you're picking on the philanthropists because at least they're the wealthy people who are trying to do some good and then the rejoinder is no actually they're, they're exactly the problem because they're using their giving to deflect from you know the necessary change that actually has to happen to address inequality and it's kind of yeah, interesting to see that people don't necessarily um, buy that sort of argument. And I, I guess this goes to a broader point that you touched on earlier. There's a lot of critique of philanthropy around at the moment, some of it really valid, some of it a bit polemical. You know, which of those bits do you think kind of genuinely hit home and you think are important? And which do you have a sense maybe have been sort of pushed too far and there's a, there's a danger of, of tipping over into polemic? That's a great question. Um, I don't know if I have... Uh the perfect answer as as a journalist covering the debate. But look, I think uh, people are complicated. Like topics are complicated. Like that's like that's such a cop out, but it's so true. The the look, there are of course always going to be examples of of billionaire philanthropy that make your blood boil, right? I mean, um I guess the be- the best example is probably the Sacklers, right? Right, which are one of these things that you know, very hard to defend sort of the way they used use their philanthropy. Um, you know, I think the critics often will grab the most egregious examples and paint with an extremely broad brush. And look, again, like as I said earlier, I don't really, it's not their job to necessarily be totally intellectually honest, right? It's their job to make make their case. Um, and again, not every billionaire philanthropist is Bill Gates, right? I mean, there's, you know, not everyone is giving away tons of money and is showing tremendous leadership sometimes the same people who like one day are the Sacklers, the next day are Bill Gates. Like that's just, the topic is complicated. People do good and bad. And I often find myself as a journalist who tries to kind of understand what motivates people, what's really happening behind the scenes. Like the simplest explanations are are satisfying, but when you dig in, often aren't true. You know, for instance, there, there are philanthropists, and I know this might make people on the left mad, like there are philanthropists who do a ton of stuff that never really talk about it, right? And obviously, as someone who's pro-transparency, that bothers me for a whole host of reasons. But I've come to believe that I think lots of the data philanthropy is actually pretty wrong because of more and more people doing more and more things privately, including the people I cover in Silicon Valley, which I think can lead to warped perceptions and warped judgments by both critics and defenders, you know, for instance, earlier this year, Candid, which kind of runs uh, one of the big uh, philanthropy data warehouses, you know, came out with a report that said that they count $20 billion in COVID related philanthropy by all institutions, corporations, individuals, foundations, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I think that's a US figure. And, you know, that predictably led to critics saying, whoa, this is so little money. How are they doing so little? And then the you know foundation the the kind of more pro uh, status quo voices would say Mackenzie Scott's giving away five billion dollars what an inspiration what if the data is just wrong and it, and and wouldn't that totally change the debate and if you look at the data it's actually just looking at public announcements of philanthropic gifts 
that Candid ha has counted in real time. So basically just, you know, Mackenzie Scott ends up being 5 billion of that 20 billion because she's announced it. Um, and, I, and if you dig, but if you dig into that, it takes some work to figure out that this is, they're just looking at public announcements, that Canada doesn't have some secret database of every billionaire's philanthropic gifts. And it makes you wonder, maybe what the debate about billionaire philanthropy is just based on such outdated, inaccurate data that we have no idea what the reality is. And, and so frankly, to me as a reporter, I am always more interested in the news than I am in the judgments about the news. I see my job as to equip other people with good information that they can use to debate you know, the question that you're asking. And I've become convinced that we're just not doing a good job. And I mean, we, I mean, the people who try to equip the public with information, because I think a lot of these reports and a lot of the information that's in the public domain is inaccurate, which unfortunately, you know, we have a lot of influence in, in, in shaping the debate. And I think we're doing a bad job at it. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's a constant bugbear of mine that most discussion and debate about philanthropy seems to collapse into either oh it's all terrible and it should stop or people yeah. defending it and saying well you can't say anything bad about it at all and actually you know the reality is very much something in the middle but that requires a lot of nuance and as you say then having you know the data and the evidence to be able to to tell that that story properly is really important sure and because, and because there's a lack of data i think that the critics and defenders can grab anecdote and just extrapolate wildly to make their point <laughs> and that certainly does happen yeah um i, I wanted to ask a, a few things i'm really fascinated with it's some of your take on on the people that you've you've spoken to i mean i guess kind of people from silicon valley to some extent but just more broadly billionaires one of the things i'm i think is really interesting is the the narratives that that truly wealthy people tell about themselves and how they made their wealth and how that informs their philanthropy and i think there always seems like a real uh, distinction between people who who have a kind of uh, a story about themselves that their wealth is entirely self-made and that they're the only ones responsible for it or those people who acknowledge that there's some element of luck or reliance on the society that's around them uh, and and that really seems to inform their sense of giving back do, do you you know do you see kind of different views on on that kind of idea of wealth creation and whether it's self-made or whether people recognize that debt in the, the people that you're covering. So in Silicon Valley, there is this almost mythologizing uh, of kind of the entrepreneurial spirit, right? This idea that the very wealthy made their money through hard work, you know, eating ramen noodles <laughs> while, uh, you know, building a company that all the doubters doubted. And look, I mean, obviously I'm overgeneralizing here. Um, there are some thoughtful people who recognize the role that race and gender and just plain old luck, how those how those factored into their company becoming successful and how that factors into their billions being not necessarily all the function of kind of the decisions that they made as people. But in Silicon Valley, there is, you know, this belief that I didn't make my billions through an inheritance, right, which might totally change your orientation on the world, but that this money was made through primarily my grit. And that would give you a very different perception of kind of the, the critiques of philanthropy, right? If you believe that it's a function of your work, the idea that, that you should have some control over how it's spent is sort of ingrained in how you made the money in the first place. I haven't covered like Wall Street or, or sort of fields like Hollywood or energy as closely, but here I, I do think that the entrepreneurial spirit sometimes gives philanthropists, makes them just more defensive, I would say, to the critique because they believe that all their fortune is 
you know, blood, soil, blood, sweat, and tears. And I wonder if that's true in Wall Street as well or in other fields that are not necessarily as obsessed, is that okay to say, um, with the idea that their money is all because of their hard work. And does that sort of spill over into their, their philanthropy, as you're saying there, in, in that they, you know, they feel that they've made their money themselves, but also have a sense that the skills that have allowed them to make that money make them uniquely well-placed to come up with, you know, disruptive solutions to social problems as well? Because it seems like a real trend at the moment for people from Silicon Valley, whether they're VCs or people who started tech companies, to sort of shift sideways into becoming experts on all kinds of different social problems now. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, that's that's a kind of, there's a thing with a very rich heritage in philanthropy of philanthropists feeling as though, you know, business skills make them better suited than anybody else to solve problems. Is, is that, you know, do you see that kind of, you know, we, the skills that we use to make a fortune in tech are precisely the skills that will solve the world's problems? Definitely. Yeah. Um, that, that is, that is what I meant by the connection between your belief in how you made the money and your belief that, you know, I alone can fix it. Mm -hmm. Um, this is uh, a key part of sort of the Silicon Valley myth, right? This idea that if you are good in one field, you're good in other fields. Sometimes that's true. Like to be clear, obviously, you know, if you make a ton of money in Silicon Valley, you're probably not dumb. Let's just, let's just put it that way. But right. I mean, I think the, the, let's take the field of education reform, which has taken a ton of uh, Silicon Valley philanthropy over the last decade in the U.S. You know, education reform critics would say just because you can, you know, move some bits around and, you know, uh, find arbitrage and make a ton of money in, in the digital world does not mean you know anything about how to educate a six-year-old in the South Bronx. Now, the education reform philanthropist would say, yeah, but I know about lots of other things. And, you know, uh, surely I have some ingenuity and some uh, capability and some technical know-how. There's got to be something I can do. So I think what really comes down to is, do you believe that expertise in one field is translatable to expertise in other fields? And in Silicon Valley, I think that debate is particularly heightened because unlike, you know, if you, let me put it this way, if you made a ton of money as in, as an heir to an inheritance, I don't think you would share this belief that I have accomplished something great. Therefore, let me teach six-year-olds in the South Bronx. But because Silicon Valley, you know, the fortunes are self-made by and large, it does, you know, I think, I think people would say, give um, some of these billionaires a little bit of arrogance when entering fields that are far afield from even just business in corporate America. And that, I guess that, yeah, it, that comes across and I suppose it's, it seems to make them particularly run counter to all of the the discussion about kind of shifting power and changing power dynamics within philanthropy, because I guess they're less likely to be willing to give away that power if they genuinely feel as though that they have something particular to offer when it comes to identifying the the solutions uh, that that brought me on to something somebody mentioned already Mackenzie Scott in that she I mean sure. okay she she's she's not a self uh, I guess positioned as a Silicon Valley donor but obviously her wealth kind of comes from that background and she seems really interesting in that one of the defining characteristics of a philanthropy seems to be it is it is kind of the narrative is all about giving away power and relinquishing some of that that control. Do you think she's an outlier and will remain so? Or do you think that the way that she's gone about things will have an influence on other sort of tech donors as well? 
I definitely think she's an outlier. And, you know, obviously during this conversation, I've been way overgeneralizing. Um, <laughs> um, um, and I do think Mackenzie Scott, uh, you know, is a great rebuttal to basically 90% of what I just said. You know, let's just take, let's just take a couple things that I've said that I think Mackenzie complicates. You know, she is in some ways very transparent in real time. Um, she has disclosed gifts on her own terms, on her own website. She has not done a major interview um, or any interview, I think, since she became, since she got a divorce from, from Jeff Bezos. And uh, trust me, that's not for a lack of trying. Um, <laughs> she knows how to find people, uh, including myself, if she's interested. Um, you know, so she's been remarkably transparent. Um, she discusses income inequality and wealth inequality in a way that I find lots of billionaire philanthropists do not um, you know, even the word billionaire, I find to be a word that billionaires do not want to say. An exception to that is Mackenzie Scott. Um, in one of her two Medium blog posts that she published last year, she she pointed out sort of this fact, which I think is just table stakes for the conversation about inequality, um, where she said um, that the pandemic has been a wrecking ball for the poor while enriching billionaires like herself. Um, and just saying that last part that the pandemic has made billionaires wealthier and that they should reckon with that fact uh, is something that billionaires themselves do not want to say. And, and as I was mentioning a second ago, I think the even referring to themselves as billionaires, which to me is just an objective, descriptive fact of the world. It's not like a, a normative statement about being a billionaire is good or bad, just reflecting on the fact that I am very wealthy and I'm not like affluent or you know, well-to-do or a person of means, like you are a billionaire. Um, that's something that lots of billionaires do not want to do. Uh, and Mackenzie Scott does. To your question about power dynamics, um, she is a great rebuttal to the argument that um, the billionaire savior complex affects every philanthropist that comes from the tech industry. Um, you know, if you read the stories about how these gifts were made, um, she's worked basically hand in hand with Bridgespan, which is kind of one of the big philanthropy consulting arms, which I guess is a fairly traditional move. But basically, these grantees just got phone calls out of the blue, like manna from heaven, um, offering $10, 20000000 million. Um, and it's incredible. I mean, you know, it, it's such a departure from the norm and from the stereotype of Silicon Valley philanthropy, right, which is this idea that as we we're just talking about, you know, well, I'll give you $10 million, but let me send over my people, you know, please do a data dump where you show me, you know, exactly the return on investment I'm getting. Um, you know, is this solution scalable? Have you considered using this software instead of your software? Now enters Mackenzie Scott and she's like, here's $10 million, so use it as you think best. Thanks. That's very different. Um, so, so I do think Mackenzie is a, um, is a effective, um, rejoinder to 90% of what I said. I will say that one thing that I, I am curious about is uh, I, I want to see how it goes. I guess I'm a little bit concerned that the narrative about Mackenzie Scott has been written pretty quickly. Um, you know, these gifts only came out last year. Um, you know, the traditional philanthropist that hires hundreds of people or thousands of people is probably looking at the Mackenzie Scott model and saying, hey, maybe you can do it just with, you know, a couple consultants and a couple uh, medium posts and call it a day. But let's, I think, I think the, the media narrative and the public reaction has gotten almost a little bit ahead of itself. Um, you know, we could very well see a scenario, for instance, in six months where, 
you know, Mackenzie finds out that she gave money to entities that kind of squandered it or didn't deserve it, or there's some scandal or who knows. Um, so let's keep our kind of celebration a little bit uh, in a bottle until we can maybe do a little bit more reporting about how it goes. That's just one thing I'll say. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because um, in a, I, I wonder though whether it, it's then applying a yardstick that has kind of been created by a different approach to philanthropy, which is, you know, measure me by the the impact of my giving in terms of, you know, kind of measurable return on investment and that sort of thing. Whereas actually, if you're genuinely shifting power, as, as she seems to be wanting to do, actually, if the goal is to empower the organizations that you're giving to by just sort of placing faith in them and giving the money with no restrictions, you've already had the impact and actually then adding a secondary layer, which is, well, let's see what happens with the money. If some of it does end up being spent less effectively than it might otherwise have been, she could possibly still claim but that, you know, that wasn't my yardstick. My yardstick was right. to empower them to to do what they will with the money. And if some of them don't use it as well as possible, I just have to accept that as a donor. Um, yeah, I'd be, you know, I'd be quite impressed if she did do that in some ways. I mean, I mean, I, I think she could arguably say that the most important yardstick is getting money out the door by any means necessary, even yeah. if it means, you know, holding a bonfire and you know, throwing hundred dollar bills into it. I mean, like that, that uh, there is this belief among lots of billionaires and i don't think it's totally bs i think they have a, i think there is a um i don't i don't i don't think that this is totally self-serving um rhetoric but it's hard to give away lots of money um you talk to advisors you talk to philanthropists themselves and the reason why lots of big donations end up in things like hospitals or museums or stanford and oxford and and yale um is because they have massive war chests that can accept, you know, a $500 million donation. So Mackenzie has, I think, put uh, put that question to the test. You know, she's put away $6 billion in, you know, a year, really in six months, six months to a year. And she is questioning whether or not that bedrock belief that this stuff is just too hard, Teddy, you don't understand it. Uh, is that really true? I mean, she has gotten the money out the door. So by some metric, she has already succeeded, right? By by the yardstick of uh, of just dollars out. Um, I what I do find interesting to me is that even though Mackenzie Scott had gave away more money in 2020 than I think any living person has ever before, at least more money to nonprofits, she actually got wealthier in 2020 than she began the year with, and I think that just speaks to you know, a different way in which billionaire philanthropy is hard, which isn't just that finding worthy nonprofits to give the money to is uh, a tall task. But I don't think we sometimes recognize just how wealthy the wealthy are. And, and here's what I mean by that. To the average person, they see, okay, a billionaire is still a billionaire. You know, you assume 20 billion, 30 billion, 40 billion, whatever. Rich person's rich. Boring story. The scale of the fortune because of the stock market over the last year and really over the last decade, the scale of these fortunes is just getting enormous, almost too big to comprehend. Um, and what that means is that someone like Mackenzie Scott can set a record, right? Give more money to nonprofits than anyone ever before has in a single year and yet still get wealthier because Amazon stock goes up. Right. And Mackenzie Scott gets wealthier just because she owns three or four percent of Amazon. And that's not really her fault. I mean, I don't know what kind of the most progressive critics would kind of expect her to do with her Amazon stock. 
she has said that she wants to quote unquote empty the safe. She wants to give away all of her money. She signed the giving pledge following her divorce from, from Jeff Bezos. And by that yardstick of emptying the safe, she is failing because she is getting wealthier. <laughs> so in some ways, it shows the challenge of billionaire philanthropy from an entirely different point of view, which isn't that it's hard to give or find worthy nonprofits, but it's hard to find enough places to take massive amounts of money that are commensurate with the winnings that capitalism is awarding you when you're sleeping um, overnight, every second, every day. Um, that I find is sort of encapsulates my beat very, very neatly. Um, rich people are doing more than ever before. And yet, as the winners of our economy are collecting winnings that outpace their generosity. Yeah, it's, I know it's a really good point. And it makes me think in terms of I mean, one of the things I want to ask you in terms of uh, philanthropy, that, that point about you know it being hard for people to understand the level of wealth that means that even if you're sort of spending or giving away as much as you can, you're still probably ending up net richer overall. Um, do you think that we don't do enough to kind of distinguish between philanthropy at that level and even a sort of long tail of philanthropy by very rich people who aren't the, the truly kind of elite billionaires? Because it, it seems to me sometimes in the critiques, a lot of them actually, when you unpick them, are quite particular to people who have genuinely phenomenal amounts of money. Say if you're talking about the kind of distorting effect of philanthropy on a democracy, there's to me a question about whether that only really applies to somebody who has kind of billions of dollars at their disposal. And actually even a very wealthy person with sort of tens of millions of dollars, I mean, they might be able to affect a little bit of distortion of democracy, but should we genuinely be that concerned? Do we need to sort of be clearer about Elite philanthropy is a totally different beast from philanthropy, you know, at a at a sort of mass affluent level. That's a, a great question, right? I guess, like, is millionaire philanthropy different than billionaire philanthropy? Yeah. Is sort of the question there. Yeah. Um, I think there's so much we do not know um, that reporters, at least, uh, have to pick pick their battles. And if there is some millionaire out there who is not that wealthy but is giving, you know tens of millions of dollars to nonprofits or to political campaigns that somehow distort democracy, uh, people should find my email and let me know um, or, or let you know or let an academic know or let some other reporter know, frankly. But I think there's just, I think the reason why we, at least I gravitate toward the very wealthiest people in society is just a question of of where to spend my time and what, which stones to uh, turn over and billionaires get the attention because they're the likeliest people, I suppose, to be making major gifts. But I'm totally open to your idea that um, there are people who are not as wealthy who could be uh, just interesting and or do doing big things for good and bad, kind of quietly behind the scenes. Uh, yeah, I guess going to your earlier point about how you know the challenges in terms of just identifying these people and getting to them, although they won't necessarily have quite as expensive gatekeepers, they're probably harder to find in the first place if uh, that that sort of large bit in the the middle of people who aren't uh, yeah. that prominent. So, I mean, I mean, even even among even among billionaires, I think you know it's always interesting every year when the Forbes 400 comes out, which is you know one of the uh, the kind of most trusted uh, accountings of wealth holders um it's interesting to me how often some of these people are totally anonymous figures like um even as someone who covers you know high net worth people sometimes i see names and i have no idea who these people are um and they could have 20 30 40 billion dollars sometimes um you know a lot of attention gets paid to sort of the titans of our day 
you know, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, yada, yada, yada. But there are some people who, you know, have some petrochemical fortune or manufacturing fortune or, you know, and I very barely know their names even, um, even though someone should be digging into them and someone should be asking questions about what they do with their money. Um, but some of these people, man, I just have no idea who they are. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And if and if you don't, I guess, yeah, it's unlikely that most people will not. I mean, I find similar things. I still see stories about, you know, people giving vast donations, particularly in the US. And I think, nope, you know, I, I keep reasoning on top of this stuff and I have no idea who that person is. So um, I'm aware I'm in danger of taking up far too much of your time, Teddy. I just wanted to to ask you um, before I let you go, um, just sort of picking up on that, particularly about the the overlap of politics and, and philanthropy. And I guess, particularly with a view to to Silicon Valley, you've seen, you know, examples of um, donors who've kind of made big announcements about philanthropy, increasingly taking kind of non-traditional approaches, not using a traditional non-profit foundation structure or using something like an LLC instead. And, you know, I mean, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative being probably the best known example. And part of the argument there seems to be, we want to keep our options more open in terms of how we do influence. Do, do you see any sense that in Silicon Valley, there is a kind of deliberate blurring of some of those boundaries between philanthropy you know for-profit investment politics yeah i mean that's uh a, a key part of kind of how lots of tech donors think about not just kind of philanthropy but at your point think about sort of how they spend their money more broadly which is that a lot of these kind of laws that govern govern this stuff are just outdated and don't really make sense so using an llc or using some more flexible structure is good for the nonprofit. it's good for the group that is the recipient of kind of the largesse. And I think they have a point. I mean, I do, I do find that some nonprofits could use, you know, a, a more innovative approach to, to revenue. And, you know, the idea that you just, you should just take money from a foundation every year, you know, a lot of these laws were written a long time ago, let's put it that way. And so the reason why there's been a gravitation toward LLCs is theoretically not just to, you know, give the donor more flexibility, but they believe it actually genuinely helps the nonprofits. And I would love to hear if that's actually true, but that's that's the idea. And I think one downside of that, though, is obviously in terms of transparency. If you are a billionaire and you use an LLC to fund your for-profit, you know, civically conscious company, maybe you would call that philanthropy, quote unquote, but it's not subject to the same kind of uh, disclosure requirements in the United States that a traditional philanthropy is. So I think there's a trade-off between the flexibility and the transparency. One thing I find that I'm encountering more and more um, on the point about structure is sometimes things that are even called foundations aren't actually foundations, um, which uh, happens more and more and is a good reminder of how we need more people digging into this stuff. You really have to go and, you know, some, you know I'll come across some charitable foundation that's called the Blah 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 Foundation, and you'll go look for their 990 and you'll see wait a minute, this isn't actually a charitable foundation, it's an LLC. Or, or, <laughs> or you'll see something that you think is an LLC that's actually a DAF, or, or as I was mentioning at the outset, billionaire philanthropists like, won't answer the question. Like I've been made this sort of my hobby horse as of late, almost probably, I probably have overdone it. Maybe, maybe people think so. But Jeff Bezos and the Bezos Earth Fund, right? Mm -hmm. A $10 billion climate program, uh, one of the most ambitious philanthropic, philanthropic efforts ever, certainly a worthy topic, demand, you know, befitting the world's wealthiest person. Did you know that we're almost, we're over a year since the Bezos Earth Fund has been announced and we still do cannot answer the very basic question of what the Bezos Earth Fund is. Is it an LLC? I kind of think it's an LLC based on some like tea leaf reading I've done. I've done some reporting that pulls back the curtain a little bit. 
it doesn't appear to be a traditional foundation. I mean, there's no 990 or I don't think it's filed with the IRS. But I guess like to, to sum up this conversation, and this, and this is sort of a meta point, like, why is this so hard? Like, why should the question about, hello, Jeff Bezos, like, what is the Bezos Earth Fund? Like, that's not, that's not like criticism, right? That's no. not, that's not even like negatively charged scrutiny. That's just like basic facts. <laughs> and I think this debate just doesn't have enough basic facts. And as a reporter, I just want to uncover the news. I just want to figure stuff out. And like the question of what the Bezos Earth Fund is, it should be like 101, a transparency. And sometimes I even see billionaire philanthropists almost take umbrage at that, at these questions in a way that is frankly weird. And I think is not necessarily leaving, uh, serving as good role models for, for, for society. Cause these, these are people who are, you know, the Titans of our day, the Rockefellers and Carnegie's and Fords of our day. I think that, you know, answering the question about what your $10 billion climate initiative is, this should be easy. And I'm, I, I get, I, 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 you can tell in my voice, I get a little bit frustrated by some of the hostility to, to what me are pretty basic questions. Yeah, and it it seems odd, I guess, if uh, you know philanthropists and philanthropy broadly is concerned about unjustified criticism or critique. Actually, you're more likely to invite that sort of criticism if you are sort of unwilling to answer, as you say, fairly basic questions just about the vehicles that you're you're using. That doesn't seem to me to be the fight that you necessarily want to to be having, because there are probably other sort of substantive questions that that hinge on you know different points of view and, and different kind of ideological points. But actually, just what legal structure you're using isn't one of them. So that does seem seem slightly odd to me. And um, listen, Teddy, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the podcast. Thanks uh, ever so much for for finding the time to come on. And before I let you go, um, is there any sort of final thoughts you want to leave people with or anything you've got coming up that you want to, to flag up to people? I think the final thought I have for folks is um, if any of this has convinced you that there should be more transparency um, and more coverage of this stuff, I would love to hear from people. Um, I, I imagine there are a lot of listeners of this podcast who deal with some of these funders or um, uncover things in just their day-to-day lives that a reporter should know about. Um, and the, the, the thought I try and leave so possible sources with is if you ever come across something that surprises you, please let me know. I am, uh, my DMs on Twitter are open. My email is very findable online. And I would love to hear from you if you believe that there's something the public should know about for good or for bad. Tell your neighborhood reporter today. <laughs> so thanks for having me. Great. And uh, yeah, good note on which to leave it. Thanks ever so much. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Teddy for coming on the podcast. Um, I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Uh, Great to have a chance to chat. I hope you all enjoyed it too. Um, I'll put links in the show notes to various things we talked about and articles that Teddy's written about this kind of stuff. Um, If you're interested more broadly uh, in issues around philanthropy and civil society, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, Follow CAF on Twitter at CAF. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis, or if you like stuff that's a bit more history focused and academic, uh, at Philiteracy. If you've got ideas for other people we could talk to on the podcast or topics we could cover, drop us a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about the podcast, leave us a nice review on iTunes or whichever podcast platform you use, and we'll see you next time. Bye!